still, he still does it. So, uh, my name is Laura Peterson, and I am your adult ed ambassador today. That means I'm not getting paid, so don't bother to complain. And Michael's uh, wonderful book, Bach and God. Alvana, do we have a couple copies of the book table? Fabulous. So, uh, if you would like to get a copy and have it signed by Michael, you can also get it all, all the usual ways and, and download it onto one of your devices. And I said this last week, but I'm still in awe of the fact that the New Yorker review of this book went on for five pages. They don't write about anything for five pages since Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. So I don't even know how you get a five-page review. But as a writer myself, you know when you see a review this long, the butts are coming. It can start out glowing, it can be wonderful, but the butts are coming. And I just kept reading, and there were no butts. So this is a very uh, wonderful, well-reviewed book, which both of our musical directors, first Wally and now Alejandro, are big fans of Michael, but of course they're both gigging, as they say, in the industry this morning, and uh, said to say that they're very sorry they can't be with us. So uh, last but not least, I would like you to turn your electronic devices off, unless it's a pacemaker, and <laughs> the other exception, if you have a Bach ringtone, that might be okay. So, Finally, I don't want to leave anything off, but you may know Michael if you go to concerts at Lincoln Center. He oftentimes gives the lecture if you go to that beforehand. And he's been with us a couple of times. This is a different program, but he has been brought back by popular demand. You may know our finances aren't terrific. So uh, Michael's very generous. I don't know if he's a closet UU or <laughs> he just likes us because we appreciate all of his jokes. Um, but he does come more of a favor to us than anything else. To keep the lights going, we will be pass. I have a plate on, on your way out. Uh, we are probably, uh, Neil's got the plate and he's got my, my little buttons. It's kind of like an NPR promotion if you want to throw something in the kitty if you see a button there a couple buttons you're welcome to take those give them as gifts uh, we are probably the only church and this is also among Unitarian churches that offers a lecture program right during the sermon you can cheat on our minister and it's okay uh, we don't mind but we we are passing the hat just to keep the lights on and keep our in this fabulous room that we're using during our renovation so, in addition to writing this terrific book, uh, Michael was the, a professor at Swarthmore College, where he is now emeritus, and he goes to all the big Bach festivals around the wor world for weeks at a time and does 12 presentations, and so we are super fortunate to have Michael Morrison back with us today. Take it away. Understandable if you lost track of what the big arc was of what we were doing last week and what we're continuing to do this week. The theme is uh, Bach against modernity. And uh, this is coming out of an academic article that I'm working on that's supposed to come out next year where I'm arguing against my colleagues who say that one of the great things about Bach is he's a modern, progressive, forward-looking 
figure and so on and so forth. And uh, my sort of general view is that uh, one can use Bach however one wants. It's a free country, and it's still it's the <laughs> And uh, um, But if you're going to claim a historical figure as your hero and draw on its prestige value, then you should, it, what you have to say about that person should actually be historically accurate. And as it happens, the uh, historical information and even the content of the works that he wrote and so on overwhelmingly show him to be fairly conservative classical Christian who is uh, anti-modernist in his, his viewpoints. Um, so that doesn't make it, I want to be really clear, that we can value, we can take great uh, spiritual value from his music or take great emotional joy and excitement and so on and so on. Those, that, that, that doesn't falsify any of that. Uh, it's possible for a, a reactionary to elicit those kind of reactions. <laughs> if he's a very skilled composer like Bach is. That's the, that's the idea. So as I said last time too, it, don't please look at the idea. Some of my critics have said, why do you hate Bob so much? Why do you hate Handel? So, <laughs> you know, I'm not to sound like Pelosi, and I'm like, I, I, I actually do hate some people. <laughs> but uh, I don't hate Bob or Handel, but quite far from it. As, as the last time it sounded a little bit like our president. I mean, probably no one loves Bob more than I do. <laughs> they might equal it, but I don't think they can surpass it. Okay, so, so in that vein, there was sort of various uh, topics that speak to the issue of whether someone is a modern figure or not. And one of the things I didn't say last time was that, um, just to cover all bases here, sometimes people will say, oh, uh, Bach or people like him were required to be conservative as his, for his job, and so he just acted like he was a conservative person, uh, but in fact, in his true heart of hearts, he himself was a forward progressive liberal. Sort of thinker and so on. And ordinarily, that's something that would be very hard to prove or disprove. But as it happens, I would just very quickly say, um, I would maybe I should have brought a thumb drive with pictures and so on. But uh, I would just quickly say that Bach owned a uh, very large personal library of theological books, practical books of practical theology, sermons, Bible commentaries, and that sort of thing. And among them, only one of them survives where we know the list of titles, but only the one of the physical books itself do we have his personal copy of it. And it happens to be in the United States. It's an interesting story in itself. It could make an interesting lecture maybe sometime in the future. Yes. Uh, but what I, uh, uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is because most of Bach's vocal music, where you can talk about the relationship between the musical setting and the words that he's setting, are composed by him in the 1720s and 30s. But in this Bible that is referred to, there are quite a number of handwritten annotations by Bach in the margin that reflect a conservative mindset that I've been talking about, but they were written in the 1740s. And so the idea is, uh, even some people thought that maybe he was studying around in his Bible to please his conservative uh, employers, but the fact was he's doing this after he's already written all the music, so it shows that, that in fact he personally held the same views that are expressed in his music. You wouldn't know that otherwise unless you'd had this historical uh, proof like that. But most of my colleagues uh, are rightly very interested in how great and magnificent aesthetically Bach's music is, and they're too, um, if you don't mind my saying, they're too lazy to actually read these uh, uh, complicated books that are in old German that are about theology. They want to hear about that, you know. But the fact is, again, as I said at the beginning, if you're going to make claims about a figure, it either has to be supported or not. And we do have good information there that people are ignoring, and that's why I'm the thorn in the flesh of some of these people by pointing this kind of stuff out. Okay. So last time we were talking about such things as uh, human beings, if you think that human beings are morally perfectible, as in fact some Unitarians do, 
um, which makes them progressive in that respect. Uh, Bach himself did not think that, and his music does not promote that, and that's the kind of thing that we were talking about last time. So this time, uh, in the 45 minutes or so that we have, I'll need a little time for questions and comments at the end. I'm going to focus on other uh, related issues like, um, surprisingly, none of my colleagues has actually looked at the question of how Bach treats discussions of reason, with a capital R, in his vocal works and uh, also in the Bible that I was just referring to. And in fact, Bach takes an extremely negative view of human reason. You may, may remember from your college courses that like the quintessential thing that makes someone a modern thinker is having a positive view of human reason. And that's like the absolute first thing you should be looking into. And that's not discussed at all in the literature that talks about whether Bach is a modern figure or not. So I'm going to take you with a little bit of that. I'm uh, just going to give you an overview of what's coming up. I guess preachers are sometimes told that I'm not a preacher and I'm not going to preach to you, but they tell you that when you're preparing a sermon, you should tell people what you're going to say, then say it, and then tell them what you just told. <laughs> I won't do the third thing, but I definitely will tell you a little bit what I'm going to tell you and then tell you. And then <laughs> so um, so that we'll talk a little bit about reason. We'll talk a little bit about time, attitudes towards time. Uh, and then uh, also attitude towards uh, social hierarchy, the idea of aristocrats and monarchs being at the top and regular people being below them, why that's considered um, uh, something that should be maintained. You know, and that's also anti-progressive and so on. That's also in the repertory and so on and so forth. And some of this repertory is, um, a lot of this repertory is unfamiliar even to Bach lovers, and some of it is extremely familiar, but they haven't sort of heard it in the way that we're talking about it. Now, but uh, if, if you don't, even if you don't like anything that I'm saying, I hope that you really like the music examples that I'm playing, and I hope it'll encourage you to go and listen to the other. There are a good 1,100 works or so of Bach, as I constantly tell people, uh, you know, or 1,200 works. Sorry, there's about 1,197 of them are A triple plus pieces, and the other three are A plus pieces. <laughs> there's no bottom drawer stuff in Bach's repertory, so <coughs> it's all worth listening to simply for its own sake, but I think that the, uh, the reason that people write books and give lectures and so on is to try to give further, uh, deeper explanations about what's, what's going on. Okay, so uh, the first thing I'm going to play for you then is just the opening line of, uh, of a hymn. Uh, I was a uh, I'm not Lutheran, but I was a Lutheran organist when I was a kid, so I got to know the Lutheran hymn repertory fairly well. So I'm almost like, I almost say I get hives when I hear the beginning of this hymn. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit, you can, even if you don't know any German, it probably sounds a little bit, sounds very beautiful, but a little bit, you know, not, not happy, let's put it that way. That sounds like this. sexy, almost jazzy sounding thing, where the orchestra goes on for a good 30 or 40 seconds, and then the choir will come in singing what you just, singing what you just heard, those first two lines, and the words are, Wann soll es doch geschehen? Wann kommt die Liebe Zeit? 
When will it happen? When will the beautiful time come? What beautiful time? The time when we are away from the time that we experience on earth here and get to see Jesus face to face in the end times. When will that be? <laughs> Hence the melancholy in the, in the hymn that I just uh, played for you. But Bach figures out a way to embed that melancholic hymn into this extremely joyful texture, because he's anticipating this with joy, not with or a combination of joy and melancholy. And if you listen super carefully, what's nice is that the first line of the hymn, the choir just sings sort of by itself, and the, and the orchestra is quiet for a few seconds. And the second line they just play, the orchestra comes back in and plays the jazzy stuff as an accompaniment to, a, to the hymn, so that they're integrated. So that not only is it musical counterpoint, where you have two different kinds of melodic ideas, right, but it's also emotionally, it's emotional counterpoint. And that's one of the things that I think separates Bach from many of his contemporaries who are great composers, even including really emotionally great composers like Handel, to have opposite emotions embedded into the same piece, that's, a, that's one of the genius things of Bach. It's not in the service of showing up, it's to make a point. The, and the point is that, yes, there's, there is melancholy associated with Handel, but there's also joy associated with it, and they're inextricable from each other. It's not one or the other. So after that big build-up, oh, this is the opening chorus of the Ascension Oratorio, BWV 11. And it always, it kills me to play only one minute from it, but if I play the whole movement, then we'll be here all day. So if, please go home and listen to the rest of BWV 11. You will, that'll be time extremely well spent. Okay, so here it is. strengthen your heart, it won't make it, make it stop. Okay, all right. So what, what this is setting up then is the, our first topic, which is the attitude towards time. And one of my colleagues wrote a famous book called, uh, and he's a, a good friend of mine, so I think he has, and he's a very good nature, he doesn't mind, he won't think badly of my trashing topic <laughs> like this. Uh, he wrote a book called Bach, uh, Bach's Dialogue with Modernity. And I joked with him and said, you know, your book isn't really Bach's, it's not about Bach's dialogue with me, it's about modernity's dialogue with Bach. And that's a, certainly a perfectly kosher thing, too, but it's very different. Uh, and uh, he made the point that, uh, uh, and as other people like to make the point, that the attitude towards time can be either as an arrow or as a circle. And that pre-modern 
views of time are such that you sort of keep coming around, even though you're, sub you're slightly conscious of the fact that things are after and before and so on, but that in some significant <coughs> philosophical sense, you're always coming back and going around in circles, and that that's the way time works. You know? And that a modern view of time is as an arrow and not as a circle, where it's, you're always moving. The past is the past, and the present is the present, and the future is the future, and you're always moving forward. And if you know your Bible, well, which again, most of my <laughs> colleagues don't, <laughs> uh, you know that the, uh, the, the classical Judeo-Christian Unitarian uh, tradition, uh, 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 this uh, scriptural tradition, is one in which, uh, sure, there are cycles. I mean, there are annual cycles of the seasons, and, and uh, I mean, the natural seasons, and also liturgical seasons, and so on. But there's an overwhelming sense that we're always moving forward to the uh, to the end time, and this is very difficult talking about time, and I don't want to get way late on this particularly, but uh, strictly speaking, the Judeo-Christian notion of time um, is, uh, uh, has been spoiled a bit by Greek philosophy, where the idea, the biblical notion was that the word that they used for eternity in the Bible actually doesn't mean eternity, it means forever. So in other words, things move forward forever. So that even heaven is forever, but the, 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 as Christianity and other uh, uh, it's a religion got infected, as it were, by uh, Greek philosophy. They had this notion that God and uh, blessed souls end, end up residing in eternity, which is where there is no time. So you move. So, <laughs> but the point is, you can argue about whether it's really forever or eternity. But whatever it, those two things it is, you get there through time, and then the other thing is going to happen, which is either forever or eternity. Now, why am I wasting talking about the? Time, the, the notion of eternity, because in classical Lutheranism that Bach belongs, they did believe that God resides in eternity and that when you're saved in the end times, you will pop into eternity. And this this will then make sense out of one of my favorite cantatas of the church cantatas of Bach, number eight, Lieb Sturkoth van Verdi Sterben. Dear God, when will I die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you laugh now, but. <laughs> So intriguingly, just like in that piece that we just heard a few minutes ago, where you have a pre-existent hymn that gets embedded into an orchestral and choir piece, that idea is going to happen again now, but the, mel the pre-existent melody that's going to be embedded into this church cantata for choir and orchestra is now not in uh, hundreds of years old hymn like the previous one was, or like, oh, sacred hymn, no wounded, or... There's a whole, there's a vast repertory of uh, Lutheran hymns that Bach draws on in his uh, vocal works. This particular song is also a strophic song. We have a whole bunch of verses set to a set to a melody that's repeated over and over again. But this song was written in the late 17th century, just just decades before Bach came to Leipzig. It was kind of a popular religious song that ended up sort of becoming a hymn, but not exactly. No, but it was, a, and it's not terribly well-known song, in fact. And so I have for you a recording of the song, where it's yeah, it sounds all right. It doesn't really sound quite like a hymn. It's not the most exciting song you've ever heard. It's if you're used to Schubert and Beethoven and song on leader, but it's it's it basically a, a early kind of lead, religious lead, based on the words Liebster, oh, "Dear God, when will I die? Um, I am of Alten Adams Elden. I am I'm old Adams." progeny. Um, soon I will, I, I'm on this wretched earth for a certain amount of time, and soon I will become earth again myself. Right? And again, one can dilate for hours on this, but 
in order to appreciate the depth of this piece, it's important to know these, uh, what these fundamental words in there actually mean. They're, they're often mistranslated in modern concert booklets and so on. They talk about ancient Adam. And so it's, the, Alta Adam, the old Adam is a technical term in theology where the idea is that human beings fell into sin and, so, and they, they um, uh, we talked a little bit about the last time, the so-called original sin. They inherit the sinfulness of Adam, so that all human generations, in, in, according to this view, are inherently sinful, even if they never actually do anything bad, but they will do bad stuff. I mean, but they don't actually have to do anything bad in order for them to be fundamentally bad, is the, is the idea. And you, okay, I don't want to get too carried away. Why would this be relevant? Because if a baby is born, you know, a baby that's only 10 seconds old hasn't, you know, hasn't murdered anybody or lied or anything, yet. maybe cries, did it sin to cry? No, no probably not. But even that baby is considered in great danger because that baby has received the inheritance of original sin. And in Luther and, and in German, that's called the Erbsünde. It's, it, it's a better term than original sin. It means inherited sin. So that's what the Erb in that word, that line that is. That's referring to that concept. And old Adam then is the uh, Adam is just the Hebrew word for human being or man. And uh, just to refresh your very quickly your memory of the story in the Bible, the idea is that God reaches into the earth, the Ha'adamah is the word for earth, grabs some Adamah, fashions it into human form, that's supposed to be an image of God, and then breathes his Ruach, or spirit, or Numa, into this clay or earth, and that becomes a human being. And it is not contaminated yet with this Erbsünde, right? So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But once Adam sins, and again, there's much debate about whether that's really true, and I'm just reporting the way Lutheran understood this in Bach there. Mankind is, humans are infected with this, uh, with this uh, inherited sin, and someone, another man, another human being needs to come along and be the new human being that restores the original idea of what a human being is supposed to be. And the Christian tradition was that, that Jesus is that new Adam. So it's the new Adam or the new man is Jesus and the old Adam or the old... Is, so the point is that we are the children of old Adam and we need to become the children of the new Adam. That's the idea. And you will get to do that especially well when you, when your pneuma when your physical stuff goes out of time and into eternity at the, at the end. Now that's a lot, it's a big build-up, and you think, is the music going to be disappointing after all of that? I guarantee you it will not. In fact, it's so great that we're going to play it twice from two different angles. This is one of the great moments in all of Bach's vocal music, and it's not terribly well-known, this piece, even to great Bach lovers. So to start off, you need to have in your short-term memory at least the first line of the song, in the late 17th century that's very unimpressive sounding musically that then becomes what the sopranos in the chorus sing in slow-mo whilst the orchestra is accompanying them and the, uh, the altos and tenors and basses are singing those same words but repeatedly underneath the slow moving uh, melody. So this melody is not by Bach and the words are not by Bach but he embeds them into a new composition of his. So here's the song. Dieser Gott kann wirklich sterben, meine Zeit läuft in immer hin. Und des alten Adams Erbe untergeben ich auch ihn. Okay, so da, da, bam, bam, bam. 
thing on Bach's part as a composer in this particular case, because when I've played this for like students, that's what I'm going to that seems like a pretty good, they say, well, how does this affect you? And so this seems like a really good depiction of eternity. It just sounds like eternity to me. If you could somehow make eternity into music, this might sound something like this. Now, you know, that might sound sort of subjective, and it may or may not be true, we can argue about it, but it's, if to the extent that it might be true, it's extremely ironic because every aspect of what you just heard is aggressively designed to project the sense of time moving forward. Right? And how is that? I mean, I had my finger was pointing ahead during one part of it, but if you listen very carefully to the texture, what's going on here? I'm going to play it again in a few, in a, in a few minutes, but you hear the basic line. And steady, equidistant things. You hear in the middle of it. Click, 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 and then the flute came in. Click, 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 click. So you've got three different kinds of equidistant things going on apart from each other, brought together into the texture. And what I want to suggest to you, and I have this is not subjective, I'm probably about to prove to you why I know I'm right in telling you this. This is a sort of sonic metaphor for a huge Baroque clock. If you look at big clocks, like in the Weimar court where Bach worked before he went to Leipzig, it has a mechanism in which it has a very quietly a boom goes by very slowly every couple of seconds, and a clicking thing in the middle. And then the flywheel, when it's reaching the end of a cycle, it sort of clicks in from like that, and then boom, you know it's time to start another macro cycle. So this is a sonic metaphor for how a clock works. And the clock itself is a metaphor for time moving forward. Right? So this is about time. 
and it goes on and on and you remember it went the last time before the chorus game it went boom done silence and then he started singing and it reminded me very much of I was asked to be um, a uh, doctoral examiner in the Netherlands at the University of Utrecht and they're very old-fashioned medieval sort of university so there, when the doctoral candidate does his or her uh, dissertation defense, you know, in French and Dutch and German and English, it's a magnificent thing. And everyone wears these medieval robes and stuff. It was great. They have a stopwatch going, and exactly one hour later, the provost of the university comes in, stamps on the ground with a big um, mask, yes, thank you, and says, Hora est. Hour is. H O. You are. The hour is up. You know, time's up. And if you're in the middle of a sentence, done. It's just like life, you know. You never know when. You know. And again, this is again pre-antibiotic days, and so you know, for, for people, it really was like that. Their life was like you never knew. You could, you know, there are lots of hymns in the Bach and that say, "Here today, gone tomorrow," and they don't mean just for people who are like 95 years old. They mean like. Even a five-year-old child or a very healthy 27-year-old, you could be here today and gone tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So they have a very different attitude towards time and death and so on than, than most people do nowadays, especially in America, who are very denying or just not aware of or thinking about these sorts of things. Okay, um, so just because it's musically spectacular too, but I, 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 you don't look like you're skeptical about this, but even, <laughs> even, even so, it's, it's wonderful to hear. There's another glorious uh, church cantata of Bach's, number 161, that was written for the same liturgical occasion that the cantata that we were just listening to was written for, but much earlier in his career. That's cantata 161. Come sweet hour of death. <laughs> and in the middle of it, the alto soloist here is saying, I'm waiting for that happy day when we move from this earth into eternity and so on and so forth. And it says, so come happy day. Uh, allow the last hour of the clock to strike. And the same texture that we've just heard is used in this piece, whereas this piece didn't talk about a clock or anything, but the other one does, and so by transference you know that Bach thought of that texture as a clock. That's the point of all this. But even if you don't care about that, it's just really cool to hear this amazing sound of, of, of uh, the way the music is set to this idea that clock, do please do strike your last hour. Okay, so that sounds like this. Break in. Happy death day. Strike, strike, strike. The last strike of the last hour. So now, just you know, now let's just listen to that opening, even before the chorus comes in, because now this allows me to make another um, point that I like to make in many different ways in many different contexts. A lot of people think of Baroque music like this as the orchestra plays an introduction, and then the soloist comes in and the choir comes in. That always bugs me. It's like the, the piece starts as soon as the music starts. That's when Bach is starting to talk to you already. He doesn't wait for the people to start saying words. 
he's talking to you already. And the words either reinforce what he's already saying to you, or they put a spin on what he's already saying to you. Right? But he's talking to you all the time. You don't just listen just for the words, you listen for everything, is the point. So now I want to, all I want to do is just play what the orchestra plays before the choir comes in, so you can hear the clock again, and hear that the entire message of everything that I've been saying for the last 12 minutes is expressed musically without words in this orchestral music that some people say introduces the choir. <laughs> right? Okay, so here we go again. traditional classical Christian attitude towards how time works and how time is associated with, in what way it's associated with eternity and salvation. Okay, so uh, much more briefly then, but much more humorously, <laughs> I want to spend just 30 seconds on Bach's attitude towards reason. As it happens, he's, there are a bunch of places in his, his Bible that I was referring to before where he underlines things and writes in the margin, no reason sucks. That's very <laughs> loose translation <laughs> of, of, of what he says. And there are about 20 uh, vocal works of Bach that rail against reason. And there are no vocal works of Bach in which he says anything positive about reason. And there are no annotations in any of his books that refer to reason in a, in, a, in a positive way. And in fact, there are uh, continual even allusions to what Martin Luther referred to reason as uh, a blind whore <laughs> who will seduce you into great dangers and so on and so forth. So um, that gives you basically the attitude towards it. And the why, why would he say that? Because what really counts, uh, um, the, the issue has to do with where you find the authority for truth. And the pre-modern view was that the authority for truth lies in what's revealed to you by God. And what's revealed to you by God is what he has told people to say in the Bible. So that's how you know it's true. Just read that and it's, it's transparent, right? <laughs> what the truth is. <laughs> and uh, you know, I could give a whole lecture on this too, but uh, Luther is an extremely um, tendentious biblical translator. He did not believe that the function of a biblical translator was to translate what the Bible says. 
the function of the rule of is to translate what the Bible means. And he had a very clear idea of what he thought it meant. And if it meant something different from what it said, he translated accordingly. And I give some uh, very contentious examples of that in uh, Bach and God. Uh, okay, uh, so where was I with this? Oh yes, yeah, so uh, reason. So I bet they, these uh, uh, Socinians and uh, your forebears and the forebears of the Quakers, that's forth more than I taught, and all these sort of people who have, and other Americans who have a very optimistic view of reason. And so on. Uh, 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 their view was that no, you can't rely on uh, God. You might still believe in God, but God uh, does not rely only on revelation to bring truth to you. The, the best way to get at truth is, uh, by nature, it should be reasonable, so you should be able to use reason to find it, is the, uh, is the idea. But, Luther's very, very worried about that because then what that becomes, he says he's worried that that'll just become humanism. It's a slippery slope, and if you really go that way, then you're not going to need Jesus anymore. And so, here we stand. <laughs> you know, QED, as they say in, in logic, okay? <laughs> okay, and I hope I'm not, I know, I've been told by Laura and others that uh, Unitarians, unlike most other groups, actually enjoy hearing uh, deprecating comments about their own group. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be deprecating, but I mean, like, joking, I guess. <laughs> All right, anyway, so the, what I'm about to play for you is a brief aria in which this tenor ferociously talks about how Schweig nur taumende Vernunft. Just shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> taumende means teetering or tottering, like if you take a breathalyzer test in Germany and you're if you are going like this while you're on the line, then taumende is that's the adjective that you would refer to the reason can't walk a straight line is, the, is what basically what the aria is saying. And it says, Talmudah Vernunft! And he says it over and over and over again, and then we get to the end of the initial section of this aria, you should hear the utter contempt in the, in the voice of this tenor who's on the word Vernunft. This is a very good performance. It speaks to the issue of sometimes people, when they don't understand the background that we're talking about, they just sing as if it's a pleasant thing. It's all very obvious, they have no idea what the words mean or what the issues are that are behind it. But this guy, this uh, Kurt Eckholz, he, I mean, he sings like his life depends on him. It. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. Very outre aria. So that's uh, that, that's just a tier of thirty seconds or so of that. about how you've got to trust the Bible and the cross of Jesus and all those kinds of things. That's what you should, you know, they should talk. No, don't let reason talk. Okay. So um, that's, I think, quite a powerful argument against Bach being a progressive. Uh, 
uh, very briefly now that a much more uncomfortable, much more uncomfortable uh, aspect of all this is the extent to which uh, um, a particular religious community is tolerant of other religious communities. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this is one of my research specialties. <laughs> Uh, we're going to leave, uh, or we're just, just going to focus really basically on Catholicism just for one minute or so. Um, there is some, the, the, there's some very uncomfortable anti-Semitic aspects in some of Bach's music, but there's subtler and requires more explanation, and it's a nice Sunday morning, and I don't want to get into that right now. If you're going to read about that in detail, there's just like uh, at least 100 pages out of the Bach and God book is about that. So, but I just wanted to plant the idea that it's possible for fantastic music to actually be objectively contemptuous towards other groups and uh, uh, yeah 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 and, uh, and uh, you know I don't want to have to explain every aspect of this but the, the a key philosophical element is just that people say well you know of course they were it was a different time and people uh, you know they believed in truth and they disagreed with other people and what's the big deal uh, again I'm not talking about disagreement if you disagree with someone you can say um, you know I think you're wrong and here's why you know uh, that's and if you're doing that and you're arguing with someone who's Catholic, you could call that anti-Catholicism. But calling that anti-Catholicism is actually a fairly trivial thing because that's just disagreement. What I'm not talking about is not disagreement, but contempt for another tradition. So if if in fact instead of saying what you said, you say you know uh, uh, you're an asshole and you're a fucking liar, which people do that when they're talking. That's not an that's not academic argument. Yeah, that's not much of an argument. That's just contempt for the, but you know, and so uh, yeah, you get the idea. I don't, you know, I don't need to dilate on that either. But uh, and this is tricky, you know, because there are eleven. As I said, there are twelve hundred works of Bach, and only you know, I don't know, seven or eight of them have these problems that I'm referring to. Thank God, you know, there's so few of them that have this problem. So you can listen to the rest of the stuff with impunity, as far as I'm. <laughs> Uh, concern, but um, what I and people start saying, well, why are you surprised that there is this contempt? So, you know, even if it is contempt and not contempt, you know, who said I was surprised? I never said I was surprised. I would, ex I'm surprised there isn't more of it in Bach, quite frankly. Uh, most of his contemporaries had more than he does. Um, what I'm surprised at, even though I shouldn't be, is that the great lengths that people go to to say that there's actually no problem in the thing. <laughs> oh, that's not enough. So the opening, I'm about to play just a minute or so, and this is a very famous Lutheran hymn called, uh, whose words have been changed <laughs> since the, In fact, they were even changed during Bach's lifetime because people were upset about them. But Bach kept the original text. He didn't use the changed one that was even available to him in the 18th century. So the words go, Erhalt uns Herr bei deinem Wort, und steuer des Papst, und terken Mord. So uphold us, God, according to your word, that's again not reason, as we've been saying. Uphold us, God, according to your word, and restrain and hold in check the murderousness of the Pope and the Turk, which is a Turk is a slang term for, um, in the 18th, a contemptuous slang term in the 18th century for Muslims. So, just to be, you know, just to be very quick about this uh, very much beloved, very important friend in uh, Leipzig, who's a very prominent, world, uh, prominent person in the world of religion and Bach and so on, is, ah, oh, Michael, that's just historical language. They don't mean, they don't mean uh, the Pope, and that's just taken <laughs> over from the record. And people have always understood that that's just, so I said, well, I said, you know, what, if they always understood, then why did they change the words in the 18th century? A, and B, why did the king of, po uh, the, the, the aristocratic rulers in Leipzig tell the Leipzig congregation not to use this 
text on occasions where they were supposed to have ecumenical things between the Catholics and Lutherans. It's bad for business, right? We have historical examples of it. And finally, not to put too strong, why is it that two years ago when they did Skintad in the Thomas Kirche in Leipzig, your, you know, the church that you go to, why did they change the words for that? And why did this guy give an hour-long sermon about how dangerous the original text was if, <laughs> if everyone understood? There was no big deal. So, you know, and that's the amazing thing, too. You know, really smart, really good people, you know, they, once, they, once they reach a certain point, they just, like, shut off completely and they can't have any conversation. It's depressing. But anyway, so I'm just planting the idea that even Bach, you know, can disappoint a little bit once in a while. And so here's a, here's a particularly good example of it. Oh, and the other thing that's interesting about this then is that you can see what, he em you can see what Bach's emphases are by listening to what the rest of the choir does, who's not singing the, the sopranos sing the hymn in slow-mo, just like the other examples that we're talking about. But then the altos and tenors and basses have to sing the text multiple times in order for them to be doing something all the time while they're in fast mo underneath the slow mo. <laughs> so that forces Bach to decide which words he thinks are the most important. You can emphasize some words more than others, right? And what's intriguing in this one is that what I hear, anyway, I see I wonder if it strikes you that way too, and I'll prejudice you by like putting my finger up whenever they're saying <laughs> the word. <laughs> but the, 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 the rest of the choir really emphasizes the pops. It's like the Pope is the one that they're really angry about and contemptuous of. And they, they, they hate the Turks too, but they're like, yeah, okay, I'm sure, why not? But the, the one that they're really upset about in this particular musical setting is really the, the Pope, so which they consider to be the, the Antichrist that was foreshadowed in, in the New Testament. So that sounds like this. Oh, so the two words that they really emphasize are Pope and Erhard, you know, to, and it usually translates keep us according to your word, but Erhard means to uphold. So the Alton Center basically will hold the word Erhard, the ha <laughs> And in the, in the 19th century, a lot of composers thought that this, was, this kind of word painting was very crude. You know, but that's, what's, that's an example of what's called word painting, where the music is doing what the, is a musical depiction of what the word is actually saying. Yeah. Okay, so that sounds like this then ferocious cantata, number 126, if you're inclined to listen to the rest of it uh, later today. Depending on your point of view, you know, under the right condition, can be a little bit humorous, but it's not meant to be funny. I mean, it's a very serious, very serious negative thing. And my point is again that a progressive does not 
write music like this <laughs> or say things like this in his Bible again, condemning the there's all sorts of stuff talking about how the Pope is a tool of Satan and so on. Uh, in in Bach's Bible, that he's you know he annotates himself and so on because he's a conservative Lutheran. Okay, but to cl to, to I, I will leave time for some comments and questions. But to, 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 the last couple of examples are a much more positive, upbeat thing for a nice Sunday morning or whatever. Um, I wanted to strangely, I decided I wanted to use the Bach Violin Concerto, a very famous piece. I'm probably all of you have heard it many times before. The solo violin concerto in E major. Uh, by Bach, as an ex which has no words in it at all, as an example of how you can project ideas about the social hierarchy such that you want the hierarchy maintained. You do not want equality. And you don't want progressive moving forward. Luther's view was, it may be the case that the social hierarchy is a necessary evil. So it may be evil in some ways. But it's a necessary evil because without it you will not have order. And the fallen world of all us old Adam types. If we were truly new Adam types, we wouldn't need the social hierarchy. But we need a social hierarchy. This is one of the things that Lutheranism was highly criticized for, especially in the uh, uncomfortable time of the uh, 1940s in Europe, because Luther was seen as someone who um, was uh, uh, unduly uh, encouraging people to have respect for authority, uh, uncritical respect for authority is the idea. And there's, it's a, it's a, that's an uncomfortable topic, but I want to sort of uh, just show how upbeat and positive he can make such an idea sound, <laughs> in both in the vocal music and in the, uh, in the, in the instrumental. So how does this work? You've probably seen this thing, uh, this concerto uh, uh, performed a lot, and often what performers do is they have the, viol the violinist just standing there while the ensemble is playing, and then when it's time for the violin solo, they kind of like sway their hair all over the place and make all these big gestures and make a big deal and so on. They play their virtuoso solo and then they like act like they're dead <laughs> again while the orchestra plays for a while. But that's not the way Bach's music is actually composed. In, in Bach's music, the violin soloist plays with the whole ensemble when they're playing that's their stuff. And it plays by itself when it's playing its solo stuff. So it's constantly alternating between whether it's a soloist or a member of the group. And in fact, the notes and rhythms that the solo violinist plays are the exact same notes and rhythms that the first violin line in the orchestra is playing. So they're integrated right into the structure of the ensemble when they're playing what the whole orchestra plays. So this is a particularly interesting example because there's an instrumental refrain versus episodes that are played by this virtuoso solo violinist. And uh, ordinarily, I know it's, this will alive in you as we get a little tired towards the end of an intense thing like this. The music will actually bring you some, uh, revive you in some, in some ways, I feel sure. Um, what's interesting about this particular uh, example of an instrumental refrain that comes back is that it comes back in its entirety every time, which is unusual in Bach. The whole refrain comes back. Often in other concertos, only part of the refrain comes back. That's part of the fun of listening to a Baroque concerto. But in this one, the entire refrain comes back every time and every time it comes back, it's in the exact same key. That is to say that the home pitch is the exact same home pitch that it's always been before. And in other concertos, they switch the sense of what the home pitch is, so you feel like you're going away and coming back. You're not going away and coming back. In this one, you're just coming back all the time to the same place, to the very same place while the whole ensemble playing the exact same damn thing. All the notes are the same, all the rhythms. That's one thing to keep in mind. Then the other thing about this instrumental refrain is that it's very brief, and 
it starts as a sort of question, and then it starts over again and gives us an answer. That's in musical term, that's called an antecedent consequent phrase. There's an antecedent phrase in which you go So you can hear that the second half starts out the way the first half did, but it, it continues differently. It continues in a questioning way the first time, it continues in a, in a, a statement sort of way the second time. And that's an antecedent consequent phrase, and they're equal in length, and it sounds like a French dance. So you've got this very elegant French dance in an antecedent consequent phrase, and then the violinist will come and be extremely virtuosic. So what Bach is setting up here is a group that behaves like it's at the French court, mm -hmm. very refined and you know not virtuosic, but very sort of um, almost like they're talking more than they're showing off how you can play a violin. So, and then the violinist comes in as this hot-blooded Italian virtuoso type of so and in, in Germany in the 18th century that one of the biggest arguments was the virtues of Italian culture versus the Italians of versus the virtues of French culture and French is much more elegant and the Italian is much more emotional and virtuoso so Bach juxtaposes these two next to each other constantly in this short little two-minute piece that I'm about to play for him and each time the orchestra comes back it says no we the group we don't you know it's orderly society is what the end the end game of all this is, and but you could be kind of, each time the violinist comes in, it's more virtuosic than it was the last time that it was playing solo, and it goes to a key that it establishes a new home pitch that's farther away each time from the original home pitch. But even though it's gone far away, when the orchestra comes in, I don't they say we don't give a shit where you went. <laughs> we're start we're going to give you exactly what we did before. We're unmoved by you. <laughs> is the point, but you. Visually, this is this would be stronger if you saw a video where they're performing properly according to Bach's intentions, because the violin is part of the you know, it's the the violin soloist himself is actually alternating between these two things, and ends up having to be where it is in the end. It's not just a, something that's required by the form of the music, then, but it's it's part of the, this narrative is what I'm is what I'm suggesting to you. So this is a way of sonically reinforcing the hierarchy, this 18th century social hierarchy. That sounds like this, and it's a very famous piece. I'm sure you know it well, but I'm going to guess that you never listened to it in this manner before. Okay, so antecedent. Oh no, I'm sorry. There it is. Even more virtuosity. 
Bright Sisters. But, big smile on the face, we don't care what you do. <laughs> Now it's pissed. <laughs> this one will be twice as long as all the other ones were. And go the farthest away. going to be topped right now just for two minutes and then we'll have five minutes for comments and questions. So the last example I want to play then is Attitudes Towards Monarchy because again my good friend who wrote the book Fox Silo with Modernity says that even a king in the 18th century is an enlightened despot or monarch whose power actually comes from the power that's invested in him by the people. I said Yes, that's, that's true. That is true of an Enlightenment despot monarch, but that's not what Bach doesn't believe in Enlightened despot monarchs. He believes in proper, what he would consider proper monarchs, which are invested by God, and their authority comes from God and does not come from people. And he's, even if he's a terrible person and doesn't even do his job well, the office of being king is a divine office, right? And God put him there. Uh, don't draw any analogies to <laughs> evangelicals treat our current president. <laughs> you get the uh, you get the idea. So uh, one of the big points that I've been making is that uh, so-called secular music, the word secular had came to have the uh, uh, association non-religious in the 19th century, but in Bach's day, secular did not mean not religious. Secular just meant anything that takes place outside of the church service. So all of Bach's music is religious, and some of it is liturgical, is the idea, or even a lot of it is liturgical. So there are all these secular vocal works of Bach, and then I realized that they, meaning again my colleagues that I like so much, <laughs> then I realized that this, they're the flowery 18th century German that they use in these secular pieces, in fact, have many, many biblical allusions, and often not even refer specifically to God. Now, uh, one of the greatest secular cantatas that Bach wrote was for the king when he was visiting Leipzig in the market square in Leipzig. The king was sitting on the second floor of this house and listened to this wonderful piece that I'm about to play for him. And in fact, the trumpeter, the first trumpeter, very was the best trumpeter in Leipzig in the 18th century, he died the following day after this. they did this <laughs> thing because of, there were 600 students outside with torches and the smoke from the torches got in his lung and, and, and trumpeter said so it very virtuosic. And you'll hear towards the end of what I'm playing that they have, when they do a trill, for example, you alternate between two pitches on the trumpet. You go, da, 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 da. They, they don't do it by alternating two fingers against each other like they do in the modern trumpet. It's all done with the lift. You go, da, 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 da. <laughs> so it's a very, very exciting sort of sound. So it's making me go a little bit longer. I think I get excited just thinking about this piece. So it's making me talk. Logaria is kind of really setting in there. <laughs> but what I'm going to do, then, I'll, I'll shut up now. But what I'm going to do is play for you the beginning of this secular cantata, have it morph into. Bach's reuse of the same music as the Hosanna from the Mass in B minor. 
because a lot of people know the Mass in B minor, but they don't know that the music from the Mass in B minor was actually composed as a secular piece first for the mm -hmm. king, and where it goes, Preise dein Glück gesegnete Sachsen, praise your uh, good fortune, blessed Saxony, in that God upholds the throne of your king. It's the second line. That morphs into the, in the Mass in B minor, Hosanna, Hosanna, look, it's the same, uh, it's, it's the same uh, weak and strong syllables, and uh, the secular guitar is absolutely fantastic, but God Almighty, there is nothing better than the Mass in B minor. That is probably the best piece ever written by anybody in the Western tradition, and I'm about to prove that to you. <laughs> okay, so that's what we end with. Here's the morphing of the secular cantata into the Mass and Demon. <laughs> God, uh, and thank you to 